Welcome to the treatment room, everybody, and a very warm welcome for our returning guest, Jan Marini, founder of Jan Marini Skin Research. Thank you. Thank you. Gosh, it's such a pleasure to be here. I, I always love working with Tess. You, you know, just have, we always have so much to discuss and it's a fun time. Yes, yes. We're always so glad to have you back. Everyone's always Thank so excited you. to see more episodes from you. And today we are in for another episode in our Ask Jan series covering one of the most requested topics, which is skincare ingredients. Yeah, it's important to have a general understanding. Let's say you decide you're going to become a chemist and you want to make skincare products. Well, when you get your chemistry degree, People who have a degree, they may go out and spend their entire career testing soil samples or food samples or fire retardant clothing or something like that. And when they go into manufacture of cosmetic products, generally they're going to go through some type of an apprenticeship because it's something that you've got to learn. And and they don't necessarily have an understanding of ingredients. They have an understanding of stability. So if they want they want to be able to make a product that's not going to separate that's going to have a 2 year shelf life that's not going to grow some type of terrible bacteria but if you say to them is it going to produce collagen they'll hand you a sheet that comes from the manufacturer of that particular raw material and it's basically what the manufacturer says which may or may not be correct so i i think that it's in general, what we want to try to address is helping the end user, our client, to really have a better understanding of how to get through this massive skincare maze. There's no one ingredient, with very few exceptions, is going to be a miracle worker. And if something is helpful for aging, I think we talked about this last time, it doesn't mean that it's going to be helpful for acne. It might make your acne worse. It doesn't mean that if it's helpful for discoloration, that it's going to be helpful for, for acne or if it's helpful for rosacea. And so it's really about targeting in and being a, a, a curious consumer who is a wise consumer. You want to look for validation. Is there some type of a, a study? And is it a legitimate study? I can't tell you how many times I've run across studies that were done on three people for three days. And they call it a study. <laughs> and so, oh, right, right. And the other thing is that it goes back to what it is that you're trying to change or improve. So you've heard me say this so many times. This is what I would ask to a famous physician. This is what I would ask a celebrity. If there was something you could change or improve about your skin, what would it be? And people typically give you number one concern, I have acne, I wish, or I wish my pores were smaller, et cetera, et cetera. And then I'll say, well, what else would you like to change or improve? And I, I'm going to get three or four different things. Now, when you ask yourself that question, whatever you decide to use, you shouldn't put anything on your skin unless there's validation that it's going to actually address that concern. And think about how you'd feel about your skin if you were to really able to address all of those concerns. And so it's kind of understanding it from that perspective. And then also a lot of the ingredients that we see out there a lot, I think it's, it's great to sort of get a basic overview 
of what they do and are they really a hero ingredient? Are they a good supporting ingredient? That's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. And Jan, before we get into talking more about these ingredients, I just want to ask you, in your opinion, do you feel all ingredients are created equal or where does quality come into play for you? So that's another really good question. Okay. So number one, the FDA has no jurisdiction over skincare, none whatsoever. Other than they have started requesting of companies to keep logs of when you get complaints or when you have irritation and things like that. Well, you know, I bet you if I did a survey, there's very few companies that really do that, but it's supposed to be there if the FDA ever ever visits you. And we do keep a very, very extensive log of everything. Now, what the FDA says on their website for manufacturers is that you can use any ingredient in the world. A a cosmetic, um, with the exception of arsenic, or lead. There's a, there's, a, there's a list of a few things. And whether or not it's considered to be a cosmetic or a drug is claims. So for example, I'll give you a good example. There's a product that is called uh, that is, is made by a company called Westwood. And for many years, I think it still is, it's lactic acid. And it is a, um, it's a drug. You have to get a prescription for it because they market it for things like ichthyosis, which is a drug claim. However, I could get that same exact formulation at 12% or 15% over the counter without a prescription in a cosmetic formulation. But that cosmetic formulation will be saying something like making your skin soft, making the appearance of your skin look smoother. So if I had a glass of water or this bottle of water, and I said, um, this bottle of water is going to get rid of your lines and wrinkles, the FDA could send me a warning letter and they could threaten to remove the product and they would uh, uh, send this letter and tell people that it was, it, they were, I was making false drug claims that I needed to go through the FDA and put an, a new drug application and spend, you know, $20 million or whatever, proving that it really will get rid of lines and wrinkles. But if I took that same bottle of water and I said, this is going to have an amazing effect on the appearance of lines and wrinkles, which is ridiculous. They wouldn't have anything to say about that. They could care less. So um, you cannot go by claims. You Claims can be fantastic mm-hmm. and not be true. Now, the other thing is, is that when you are purchasing raw materials, raw materials can come in all kinds of a variety of, of formats. And for example, um, if I'm, uh, peptides are a good example. I can't tell you how many times I've seen a product that says we have 20% peptides. That's impossible. Peptides come in parts per million. You can't get them any other way. And depending on the, the particular peptide, there's a range of efficacy. And that range of efficacy might be three to five parts per million. And you can decide, do I want to put in three parts or do I want to put in five parts and really spend more money and get to the highest end of efficacy. Or I could say, well, you know what? I just want to use one part per million just so I can put it on the label. It's not going to work. Some make the range of efficacy could be three parts per million or eight parts per million. And so 
you might be using that peptide might be in a 20%, it might be 20% of the solution, but it doesn't mean that your product has 20% peptides. It's nothing like that. And I could go on and on in terms of the efficacy of the raw material and the percentage of the raw material, the solution that it's in, on and on and on. So that's a really good question. There is a very wide range. And let me just tell you, I have products that cost me eight, nine, ten dollars to make, to make. So when somebody claims to have an efficacious therapeutic product and they're selling that entire product for five dollars, I mean packaging can cost you two dollars. So it's just it doesn't make any sense. And then it's the way it's put together. Um, we've also touched on this before, but ingredients have uh, very specific parameters, and particularly therapeutic ingredients. It's not easy to make a cosmetic product. If you were making a drug product, you know, we would come up with uh, a drug ingredient. And in order to get it through the FDA, we'd have to have it in a very simple formulation because otherwise they don't know what they're approving. We wouldn't have any other actives or anything in there. We'd put it in Vaseline or something. Now you take a cosmetic product and look at the list of ingredients. And first of all, the pHs may not be compatible because glycolic for to get it what you're to get what you're going to see in a medical study it needs to be at around three point three point two three point two five to three point five right around in that range. Um, retinol needs to be at about a five six. Um, lipid soluble C, we have it around seven. Um, and I mean, it goes on and on in terms of whether or not they're going to be compatible. And also, how do they have to be manufactured at a high speed, a low speed, heat, cold? So the efficacy of a product is so dependent on these factors. And I did a podcast, this was quite a while back. There was a derm on the podcast, there was a chemist. Um, a number of other individuals that were interviewing me. And one of the things that the chemist said is she said, yeah, she said, I don't know how Jan does some of these things. It's like, it's like they're magic. And it, it really, what it is, is it's taking every single component and making certain that it's compatible. And really what is your efficacy and doing proof of concept and just determining whether something is really going to have a measurable effect. And I, I would agree, your products really do feel like magic to so many of us who get to try it. So Jan, let's get started. We're going to talk about a number of ingredients in terms of what they do or what they don't do. And this is a part two to a previous episode. I'll be sure to link the first episode in our show notes. But kicking us off today, Jan, do you want to highlight ascorbic acid and what it does for the skin, and how does that compare to something like ascorbyl palmitate? So, you know, ascorbic acid is something that's been around for a while, and vitamin C always gets lots and lots of presses, you know, and it is, a, it is a, something that is really good for the skin. Um, you know, without vitamin C in our body, we can't make collagen. And the topical use of vitamin C, I think it's, there's a lot of validation there. But when you hear the term vitamin C, you hear a score, you really, what you're hearing is ascorbic acid. That's, a, that's actually probably the least expensive form of vitamin C. And the problem with ascorbic acid is something called redux. 
And redux stands for reduction and oxidation. So oxidation is where ascorbic acid is very, very unstable. If you expose it to oxygen, if you expose it to sunlight, if you expose it to water, all the things you have in your bathroom, it begins to break down very, very quickly. And it breaks down to the point where I've even, I've, I've taken products myself, tested them that were shortly out of manufacturing and just maybe they're supposed to be 15 or 20% and they test out at four or 5% at that point, And they're going to go down from there. Um, so there's that instability. And then the second part of this is, has to do with, it's a, a reduction in oxidation. So it's reduction. And one of the things that you hear about vitamin uh, ascorbic acid is number one, you hear, well, you shouldn't use it at the same time as a retinoid. You should use your retinoid at night, your vitamin C during the morning. Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, when you put ascorbic acid with a retinoid, it reduces it. They're not compatible together, even even though they're not in the same formula, just putting one on top of the other. The second thing, in order for ascorbic acid to really work, and this is in the original patents, Dr. Meiser and Dr. Shaninsky, um, that it needs to be at a pH of 2.5 or lower. About 50% of the population cannot tolerate that pH. Um, they just really, it, 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 the skin reacts to it. And so two things happen. Either you can't tolerate the product or they make products with a much higher pH for people to tolerate, in which case you're not going to get the same efficacy. Now, when you take that low pH, and if you were to use it at the same time with a retinoid, even if it didn't reduce it, it will, but even if let's say it didn't, um, you're going to get some so much inflammation with the ascorbic acid combined with some of the inflammation from the retinol. And some inflammation is good. Inflammation can stimulate collagen. Inflammation helps in the healing process, but you don't want constant ongoing inflammation because what you can happen is you can have collagen breakdown. Aging is an inflammatory process. So, um, so that's why they don't want you to use the two of them together. So you have the instability, you have reduction, and you have the incompatibility with pH and all of that. Now, what I work with is I work with a scorbal palmitate, chemically known as L-ascorbic acid 6-palmitate. Now, this is the liposoluble form. It's recognized as an intact molecule. It doesn't have to be converted. So a lot of times these vitamin C derivatives, they have to be converted once you put them on the skin into ascorbic acid. This is seen as an intact molecule. And it has a neutral pH. You can use it at the same time with a retinoid, with glycolic, with any of those things. You don't have to separate them out. Um, and also it has a minimum two-year shelf life. You know, occasionally you'll see ascorbyl palmitate listed not as an active ingredient, but listed in the, in literally down at the bottom in the preservative area, because it will actually help to preserve a product or help um, augment the preservatives that they're using. That's how stable it is. Now, I, I won't spend all the time going into this, but we could spend a lot of time going into study after study showing that it's far more effective than ascorbic acid. And so one of the studies showed that it was um, uh, uh, 30 times more effective than ascorbic acid, even at one quarter of the, the amount. That was a study done on forbolester-induced tumors. Uh, Ogle Marco, who was a 
independent biologist who used to be with Sloan Kettering has done studies using the tissue culture flask method, the collagen sponge method, which demonstrates uh, equivalent to in vivo and in vitro, showing that much more collagen production than um, ascorbic acid. So it's anti-inflammatory, it's compatible, it's stable. Uh, and, and again, that's what I'm talking about when you make decisions, where are you going to spend your money? Because whether you spend $5, you spend $50, $75, the bottom line is you want it to work. Jan, I, I know with your vitamin C, it's in a specific type of packaging that's opaque and you have a pump, not a dropper. How important do you think packaging is? You know, it depends on the ingredients. So one thing that I will tell you, and, and this can be confusing, ascorbic acid, when it, when it breaks down, it starts to change color. So we assume that anytime something changes color, that it's breaking down. And that's not necessarily the case. In this case, it, our product will actually start to yellow or brown slightly. And it's not because of the ascorbyl palmitate. It's because of something called DMAE. And DMAE is, I, I know we're going to talk about that, um, dimethylaminoethanol. That's a mouthful. That's why I call it DMAE. <laughs> um, will actually turn brown before you even pour it into the bottle. And we do things to slow down that process, but it doesn't have anything to do with efficacy. It's an amine, and it's a whole other. It's a whole other issue. It doesn't mean that it's it, it's hurting the efficacy or the beneficial aspects of the product. But you know, it just depends on the on the price. A lot of times, I'll tell you something. We put things in airless pumps sometimes just because it's the most stable delivery system or the best delivery system as far as the pump working better than certain other pumps that are not. You know, so you go to pump the product and nothing comes out, right? So it doesn't necessarily mean that it needs an airless pump. And the, the, the misconception also about airless pumps is that you don't need a preservative system. Let me just tell you, you have certain spores and certain bacteria that happen, no matter if you're in an, uh, a GMP lab, which is an FDA supervised, approved lab, the same lab that makes drugs. So you're, it's like they're working in a clean room, like in a hospital. So you can have all of these uh, sanitation and, and people wearing gowns and masks and everything, and you're still going to have spores and bacteria that will, even if they're dormant at the time when you're making the product, can actually grow in the product. You've got to have a preservative system. You have to. And Jan, I know we talked about vitamin C being necessary for collagen synthesis, I would say one of the most common things I'm hearing from clients lately is that they don't know what to expect when using a vitamin C. Could we talk about what is realistic in terms of what, what you should be seeing from a quality vitamin C? Well, what I can tell you is what you can see with our product. And, and here's something you said was really interesting. So yes, we hear about vitamin C and that it's, if you can get it into the skin, how it's going to be helpful for collagen, but that's not the reason why vitamin C was first studied. So here's what they found out about vitamin C. And this was the study first of ascorbic acid. Okay. What they found out is that if you put vitamin C on your skin and you could get it to absorb and you put it on like any other skincare product, you did it for like three days in a row. For the next three days, even if you didn't reapply it, 
you would have actual total sun protection. Now, the reason is it's not because it's the sunscreen, because it stops the cascading inflammatory effect. You can imagine that scientists were very excited about this. So it would stand to reason that if you're a university, one of the things that you do when you make these discoveries is you license them out to pharmaceutical firms. They go through the FDA and then they pay you a nice royalty like with, with Retin-A. You make a lot of money. Well, why didn't they do that? The reason they didn't do that is because ascorbic acid is not stable. So how can you get it through the FDA? So they started working around with cosmetic formulations. And of course, you don't have to have go through the FDA. You don't have to prove it's stable and all of that. Now, the good news is, is that lipid soluble C, ascorbyl palmitate, has that same effect. It stops that cascading effect. Now, we, we don't make that claim. You can't make that claim that's a sunscreen. But one of the things that you're doing is when you look in the mirror and you see that, start to see that damage, it's damage that happened before the age of 10. You can either exacerbate it and make it a lot worse, or you can start to do things that actually allow your skin to repair at a, at, a, um, at a much more noticeable rate. And one of the things that they've just demonstrated with sunscreen is let's say you're 30 years old and you're starting to see signs of aging. And so you start wearing a sunscreen. If you do that consistently all the time, we're talking about indoors, outdoors. When you're 35, five years later, your skin will look younger than it did at 30. And so um, this is another way, because even if you wear the best sunscreen in the world, you're absorbing about 3% radiation in your skin. So this is another way. So that's one thing. Now, secondly, um, in terms of, of, of what you, you should see is generally most people, if it is actually absorbing and it's stable, they start to see that their skin looks a lot brighter. Um, it looks smoother. It can help with the appearance of inflammation. There are studies showing with, with our product that it actually has decreased pustule count and acne. Um, it, and, and there's probably, you can go on Medline and you can probably find about 1,500 studies on a scorbopalmitate, both internally and externally, that will support. And that's the world's largest medical library. Um, there's, there's all kinds of things that go on that you can see over time with a good vitamin C product. Now, but what I've also said is that if you take the vitamin C out, we would still have a remarkable product, and that's because of DMAE. Now, that's the ingredient that stands for dimethylethanol. So it is a powerful antioxidant, but it is a precursor to acetylcholine. Now, acetylcholine is a major chemical messenger that your brain produces. And one of the things that acetylcholine does besides brain function is that every single nerve in your body sparks acetylcholine into your muscles. Now, it causes your muscle to contract. We call that correct anatomical muscle positioning. You can call it muscle tone if you want, but even your facial nerve sparks acetylcholine into the muscle. And this is not the entire aging picture by any means. The aging picture is like this 50,000 piece puzzle. And this is one little piece, but it, when it sparks it in the muscle, it's one of the things that helps to keep your cheek pads higher and your just more definition and to keep your jawline more defined and your neck nicely defined. And so this actually started out as research in Alzheimer's disease. 
So again, DMAE is a precursor to acetylcholine. And at one time, many years ago, they thought that Alzheimer's was primarily having to do with acetyl, with, with this neurotransmitter. Now we know it's beta amyloid protein and there's a function of this, the uh, neurotransmitter as well, uh, the um, acetylcholine. But um, at any rate, um, they, they were testing to see if they could somehow augment this with a, a food-grade substance. We all get it in our diet, but they were giving these patients, Alzheimer's patients, in a very high amount to see if maybe they could slow down the deterioration and people could have cognitive function for a little longer. And actually, they were able to achieve that. It's, it was the precursor to a lot of drugs that are available today. It doesn't cure the disease, but it helps people to be functional longer. Well, somewhere along the line, somebody stuck it on skin. And what they were finding out, finding out is that it actually had an effect in this transmission between the um, acetylcholine and the, uh, the receptor site. So as we age, these receptor sites that are picking up this neurotransmitter and causing the muscle to shorten, probably the receptor sites become compromised. And it's complex and it has to do with growth factors and has to do with all kinds of things. But if it becomes compromised, it doesn't pick it up the same way. Maybe we don't produce quite as much either. So they found out that when they would put this on the skin, that it was having an immediate effect either in augmenting this neurotransmitter or making the receptor site more re receptive. And so what was happening, and this was a study that was presented at the American Academy of Dermatology, half-face, double-blind, random placebo a real study. And the half of the face where it was applied, which you apply it right up to the hairline on the neck and behind the ear, one eyebrow would be higher than the other, nasolabial fold a little bit more pulled back, jawline more defined, neck looked better. But here's what's interesting. They found that the effect was persistent, which is a medical term, meaning, I'll give you an example, let's say you used it for three months or six months, and you said, I'm not going to use it anymore. Typically, with products, you wash your face a couple of times, and then you're back where you started. Because they're using what's called film formers. Now, film former is doesn't feel sticky on the skin, but a lot of firming products have them, and they apply just enough tension so your skin looks a little tighter and firmer. But if you stop using them, you know, after a couple of washings, it's, you're back to where you were before. What they found is that with this, the effect was persistent or permanent, and your skin would simply age back. You don't lose it. Um, and it's also one of the most powerful antioxidants, or one, excuse me, most powerful anti-inflammatories that we've ever found. Um, and it, there, they also did a lot of studies with this um, having to do with delivery agent for other ingredients, which is one of the reasons we have you put Siesta on first, because we can actually enhance the performance of other products. Um, but anyway, when you add that to the lipid soluble C, it becomes extraordinary. And DMAE, it's an ingredient I don't hear as, as often as most of these other ones we've talked about. Is there any reason for that? Is it expensive to make? Well, it can be expensive and it is really difficult to formulate with. Now, you can actually take DMAE internally as well. And it's also uh, really prevalent in things like salmon. But DMAE is what is known as an amine. 
And amines have an unusual odor. And in this case, if I didn't do anything to scent this product, it has a, a, a smell that is a cross between a cat urine, dead fish, and ammonia. Now, I don't like to scent things, and I don't scent them whenever it's possible. But in this case, people nicknamed it birth control. Because maybe, you know, you put it on your face and maybe after a couple of minutes you can't smell it, but your significant other can. And they're just, it's like disgusting. So we, we, I'm telling you, I went through, I can't tell you what I went through to scent it because at first I thought, I'll just make an orange scent, vitamin C. It smelled like rotten catfish, dead urine oranges. And so I had to keep going and I came up with this natural kiwi extract that people love. And in fact, they're always saying to me, you should make a perfume that smells like siesta. So it was either that or nothing because nothing else has ever been able to change that smell. I would definitely sign up for a siesta perfume fragrance body mist. Okay. I'm going to tell you something that I haven't, I haven't really mentioned much at all. We're going to be premiering um, a little later, in, I, probably in the summer sometime, a glycolic body product. Because everybody always says, if I could just bathe in glycolic. So this is something that's really incredible for the body skin. And I gave it a bit of a siesta scent. So exciting. Yeah. Can't wait to see it. That is awesome. We talked about DMAE growth factors, another really amazing age management ingredient. My favorite product that you make, Jan, is the Regen Booster, which contains growth factors. Do you want to talk a little bit about growth factors? I feel like they're a newer Mm -hmm. technology and ingredient, and it can go wrong and and not really be so efficacious, or it can be really amazing. This is one of these ingredients, and I will tell you, um, I when we were first started, when I first started working with growth factors, I had a lot of skepticism in the medical community because a lot of physicians and scientists as well would say, "Well, you know, how are you getting them to actually work? Because they're very large molecules. So they're large proteins known as polypeptides. Now, part of this is kind of a misunderstanding about absorption." You know, everybody talks about a product absorbing, you know, and, and it makes it sound like it is, it's much more efficacious if you can just get it to absorb so deeply. Well, we don't want it to absorb into the bloodstream and we don't want it to pass the target. What, what I'm trying to do is to get it connect with receptor sites. And you have receptor sites on every single cell, outside, deeper. And if I can connect with those receptor sites, that's the key to getting them to produce collagen or getting them to, it's like, they're like orchestra leaders. So you don't really have to get that much absorption, but you've at least got to get, somehow get it connected. And that's where it's very tricky with growth factors. So just because you put it in a product doesn't mean that it works. And I will say that the majority of them probably don't work. Um, But what they do is they bind to receptor sites with the purpose of activating cellular proliferation and or differentiation. So cells need to, to, to keep growing and proliferating and, and like they're like they're young cells and they need to differentiate. Um, and they also stick, they stimulate cell growth. They stimulate a lot of cell functioning. So 
think of, of growth factors as keys. So here you have the receptor site. And think of the receptor site as a lock. So what a growth factor does is it clicks into the lock and it turns things on. And it, as you age, think of the lock mechanism as getting rusty. And so the growth factors that you have are not effectively working as keys to a sense stimulate these things. So you, again, it's another piece of the puzzle in the aging process. And applying growth factors, if you can actually get them to work, is kind of like replacement therapy. So now all of a sudden your skin, and you know that's one of the reasons why I see people see a, a, a real difference right away with Peptide Extreme or with um, Regeneration Booster, is because what you're doing is suddenly your skin is like, oh my gosh, you just put the key back in, you just turned on these, these kinds of these functioning. And so I like to use growth factors, uh, particularly transferring growth factor beta one, which is in transformation, which is in the normal combo kit and the moisturizer. Dr. Wido of Jefferson University stated that it, um, it stimulates the type of collagen you don't produce after the age of 30. I like thymosin beta four, which is my, one of my own patents. And, um, it kind of helps to support, we, we believe it helps to correct instructions coming from your DNA. And then we, with Regeneration Booster, we not only have TGF-beta-1, but we have keratinocyte growth factor, which helps with volume. We have epidermal growth factor. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's an evolving technology, and it's not a perfect technology. But when you mentioned about Booster and how much you like that, that study was actually written up in the Journal of Drugs and Dermatology, a peer-reviewed medical journal. Um, and it takes it can take months and years to get into a peer-reviewed medical journal because you just don't get skincare products in there. It has to be of significant value to the medical community. But in the study, the patients literally had a 100% response in every category, whether it was discoloration, whether it was the size of follicles, whether it was you know skin elasticity, collagen, just the skin looking younger, smoother. So I'm sure that's why you like that product. And it's one of my favorites as well. Well, it's just a really amazing product because it really targets every concern you could have. And like you were saying, it's kind of unlocking the skin's ability to, to perform better and to, mm -hmm. to respond in a healthy way. And when you look at the before and afters using Regen Booster, you see improvements in collagen, in improvements in acne scarring. You see improvements in the overall tone of the skin, elasticity, and pore size. And those are difficult concerns to address. Yeah. And, you know, it's not one of those um, technologies where you can say, okay, it's going to make my acne go away or my discoloration go away. But um, it, is a, it is a remarkable product um, it just in terms of in that anti-aging category. And I, I love that it's not an exfoliating product because you might have limits with that and, and hopefully you're already mm -hmm. using ingredients mm -hmm. to do that. But I find it really addresses those, those difficult concerns while improving the barrier function too. Yeah. And you know, when we look at, when we look at aging or we look at just the surface of the skin and you know, regardless of what you're using, bottom line is you want to look in the mirror and you want to go, oh my God, my pores look small. My skin looks smooth. My, you know, I don't have a bunch of breakouts. don't have a lot of discoloration. So there's two things. 
One is resurfacing the skin and it's doing it in a non-inflammatory way. So scrubs, I'm, I'm not a fan of scrubs. Most of my derms don't like scrubs because they create microscopic tears. They're abrasive, even if, you know, and, and very unpredictable. And inflammation, again, is the basis of the aging process. So um, re by resurfacing, doing something that actually causes the skin, in a sense, to resurface itself. So I, I like glycolic salicylic azelaic bioclear because it dissolves and dislodges a glulac substance and cellular cement between cells, causes to lift off, interrupts the acne process. It's also good for appearance of rosacea and acne and, and um, discoloration and all of that. So again, we want to do something with like the system that just transforms that stratum corneum and, you know, the smoothness and the radiance. But then we have to address more specifically some of the other kinds of issues because we, we want to manage acne. There's no cure for it. We want to manage discoloration, no cure for it. Rosacea, no cure for it. Um, and so we have to address the factors that actually go into how these conditions arise and how can we manage them? Because I can't change your genetics. One thing that this growth factor product, Regen Booster, does do, however, is it does affect the, the shortening of telomeres. Can you talk about why that's important in the aging process? Okay. Well, that's another one that's a, kind of an emerging area. Um, so first of all, telomeres come, come off the end tap of your DNA. They look like shoelaces. And the end of a telomere looks like the end of a shoelace, like that hard plastic part of the shoelace. And that's known as the telomerase enzyme. Telomerase enzyme has a lot of genetic material, chromosomal material, and it helps the telomere to stabilize and helps to prevent premature shortening. Now, telomeres are quite fluid because they can actually lengthen, shorten. But the idea is, is that as you age, currently we're unable to prevent us from, even if we can look great out here, you know, our body is aging. And as we age, telomeres get shorter and they get shorter and they get shorter. And when they get really short, you lose the ability to repair and rebuild. You, your, your immune function um, lessens to the point where you can't uh, function properly and you die. Now, one of the reasons we know this is because children that have progeria, that, that they literally, literally look like little old people when they're, you know, they don't live past their teenage years usually. We know now that they're actually born with little tiny short telomeres. They're literally born old. And um, the Nobel Scientific Prize a number of years ago was awarded to three physicians for their work in telomeres and telomerase enzyme as they, related, as they relate to aging and longevity. So this is a huge area, a huge focus, because it's kind of like the granddaddy control panel. You know, we hear about exosome, we hear about stem cells, but essentially a lot of this is, the mystery of a lot of this could be in telomeres. Um, so at any rate, I began researching this well before the Nobel Prize, and I came across a study, a little-known study, where they soaked skin cells in telomerase enzyme, and they never aged. They became immortal. And 
this always gives me chills when I say that because it's just so extraordinary. But I'm not at that point. I can't make your cells immortal. But what we've been able to do is we have a substance called cycloestrogenol, which comes from the astragalus plant. And actually, the astragalus plant is the basis for something called TA65, which is a something you can take internally if you're willing to pay up to about $1,000 a month that actually also works on your telomeres internally. But anyway, I took cycloestrogenol, which is actually further up the food chain and even more bioavailable. And what we find is that it appears that it helps to stabilize the telomere and it may add a little bit of length. Now, telomeres can shorten when you have an illness or if you have a if you don't take care of yourself and your lifestyle is is not good but then if you you know if you get well and you improve your lifestyle they can also lengthen a little bit so they you, they can be influenced and so what it is is kind of like turning back the skin's aging clock it doesn't mean you're going to turn it back to 15 but maybe your skin functions more like it did 5 or 10 years ago and i so i think that's really what people notice they notice the appearance of all of these different things because it's, it gives you global improvement in the appearance of these various concerns. And that's what they saw in that study. Um, so you use it right along with the system. doesn't take the place of resurfacing, doesn't take the place of you know, other kinds of issues. Right. Hence the name Regen Booster, yeah. intended to boost, boost the system. So... Next on our list is peptides. And peptides, I feel like, have been coming into the mainstream a little bit more. Could you speak to what peptides do for us? And another question about quality. When you're seeing pep peptides, you know, in products that are under $10, $20, would you say it has the potential to be a benefit? Um yeah, you know, like the, believe it or not, the company that had the first um, peptide was Oil of Lay. And I don't know if they called it Regenerous back then or not, but it came from a company called Salderma out of Northern California. And um, it was a palmitotal pentapeptide. So it was one of the early peptides, not nearly as effective as some of the ones we have today, but if you use it in a tiny little amount, you can get some benefit from it. Um, but so peptides have come a long way. And peptides are very prolific in our body. We barely scratch the surface on peptides. For example, there's one peptide in fetal development. If it's off slightly, the child will be born with cystic fibrosis. That's how profound peptides can be. And when we look at them from terms of skincare, I like to look at it as far as like a, a toolbox. So taking peptides, if you really understand them and what you can do and using them to actually affect different changes in the skin. So peptides um, are made up of two or more amino acids. So amino acids are really small. So they're much smaller than growth factors. They're tiny chains of amino acids. They can be anywhere from two to 50. And these little tiny amino acids. And what the skin sees peptides as is they see them as signaling, things that signal. For example, uh, the early peptides and a lot of the peptides that are still around today, um, what they did in order to act as an anti-aging element is they fool the skin into thinking it's been injured. And what happens is you start producing collagen. 
That's a real simple way to do that. That's just one peptide, but there's probably so many peptides we've never even discovered. And it's become a lot more sophisticated. So for example, um, I have a peptide that um, we use for being able to downregulate the, um, uh, the um, melanocyte stimulating hormone, which has never been done before for pigmentation, which is illuminant. I have another peptide that works on the kisilicid and inflammatory pathway for rosacea. Again, hasn't been done before. And then, of course, we have anti-aging peptides, and we have peptides that just can do so many different things. And are they, can they be expensive? You bet they can be expensive. I'm, you know, I'm working with research labs, and it's, um, so these are things that it's an evolving area of research. And there's some, you know, peptides that just work a lot better for anti-aging than others. I can just tell you right now, there's not a peptide that is going to replace Botox. You hear about these neuro, uh, uh, neuromodulators and they better than Botox and this and that. You'd paralyze your whole face. It's ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. You want to spend your money on them? Fine. And you know, you hear it all the time. They call them um, the SNAPS uh, peptide or... Um, Oh gosh, I've heard it. But the, the advertisement for a long time, there was advertising better than Botox. And supposedly you put them on, you know, these areas like where you have crow's feet or, you know, your whole face and it's supposed to help to um, work on that, that neuromuscular junction. It doesn't. What Botox does is it works on dynamic muscle movement and it temporarily, very specifically, paralyzed it or disabled a muscle that's overworking. So the crease in the muscle disappears because that line is really a crease in the muscle. If you, if you could do that topically, you would paralyze the entire face. Now, there's something that we are working, that I am working on. One of the things that does affect our skin are micro muscular contractions that are in the surface. Those micromuscular contractions, which are very different than dynamic muscle movement, though, can play a role in causing the follicles to look larger and the skin to not look quite as smooth. So I am working on a neuromodulator kind of formulation that can help with that. Now, one of the reasons we know this can work is because today, one of the very popular movements in Botox is to inject it superficially, meaning you either take microneedling or a needle and just go. Pop, 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 pop. So you're not you're not affecting the muscles; you're simply affecting that micromuscular uh, tension in the surface of the skin, and it just makes the skin look um, a lot more glowing and smoother and more refined, more baby-like. But the thing is, is that you're paying a lot of money for that. And it doesn't really last the same as, as traditional Botox would last. But what if we could kind of do something very similar topically and it's a lot more cost effective. So stay tuned. Yeah, I know with peptides, they've, they've even really come into both the wellness and the anti-aging space. I, I came to you when I was investigating a, a holistic practice that was using peptide therapy for autoimmune health. And, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, they have that whole menu of, of sure. different peptides that can help with 
different diseases, autoimmune, mm -hmm. or even offer anti-aging benefits? Yeah, it's, 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 it's really a fascinating area, and it's just constantly evolving and constantly changing. And the other thing I want to say about peptides, this is what even a lot of chemists don't know, is you don't realize if you use them with certain binders or certain stabilizing ingredients, it renders them inactive. you got to know how to formulate with them. So you could have a, a be, it could be an expensive product. It could have a, a, a good peptide in it, but maybe it's got the wrong, something that's been done wrong in manufacturing or the formula, and it's not going to have the same effect. Oh, one other thing I want to mention too. This is something that makes me a little crazy. So I see this in the, I see this even in the professional market. You see a, um, a line of product has a good reputation and it, and it probably is a nice product line, but their claim to fame is a particular peptide. And so what they do is they put that peptide in the face cream and they put it in the eye cream and they put it in the neck cream and every single product has that peptide. So regardless of what you're using the product for, you've got the same peptide and that's the whole basis of the technology. Well, it doesn't work that way. Because what about your acne? What about your rosacea? What about your discoloration? What about pore size and on and on and on? So we have to address this on a much more global basis. Because you use a peptide, and even if it's something that really is helpful for maybe something about the aging process, it doesn't mean that you don't need to be using duality and that you need to be using something else for your discoloration. And it is, um, there's, you know, you, it, it takes a lot of technology to address a variety of common yes. skin concerns. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And Jan, one last question on, on peptides. This is a really popular one, but I feel like you're a good person to explain why this doesn't necessarily work. Um, we're seeing a lot of, you know, collagen peptides and powders. And I think the expectation from consumers is that they can see a benefit, an anti-aging benefit from ingesting these powders. What would you say to that? I think that there is some validity to it. It depends on the product. And I, boy, I'm, I get asked this a lot because some of these products and some of them are even sold in physician offices you can spend $125, $150 a month. And, um, uh, you know, the thing that I always ask somebody, the reason I ask that question, if there was something you change and improve about your skin, what would it be? Or back it up, turn it around the other way. So what is it that you want to see if you take a collagen drink? What do you think you're going to see? Explain to me exactly what you think you're going to see. And sometimes... Even if you there's some improvement, it can be very, very subtle. Now, I'll tell you what I like in that category, and this has got a lot of research, and a lot of these products don't have a lot of research, but there is an ingredient called BioCell, B-I-O-C-E-L-L, -L. and I think they just recently put it in liquid form, but I think the, the original form, which is in the capsule form, is probably the best and the least effective. BioCell was has been around for years and it has lots of medical studies behind it. And it was originally studied in arthritic patients. So typically these patients were elderly. And the idea was, could they take hyaluronic acid, attach it to a peptide and a collagen, 
and get it to the target area where it would cushion joints so they would have less pain and more mobility. And it actually worked really well. But anecdotally, patients in the study were saying things like, well, you know, it's interesting. I, I feel better. I can move better. But, you know, my, I, I, this maybe it's my imagination. I have fewer brown spots. My skin looks smoother. I feel like my, I'm having fewer wrinkles. My body skin feels moisturized. And so that's when uh, I first came across that study. And I began actually working with BioCell years ago. And I've taken it myself for a lot of years. Now, what you do is in the study, they gave patients 2,000 milligrams a day. So they're essentially, um, I can't remember if they come now in 1,000 milligram tab capsules or 500, but anyway, you take 2,000 milligrams a day. And um, it used to be, so I just ordered, I'm not, I'm, I'm sorry if I can't give you a really current price, but I think it's around 30 something dollars a month. And again, the recommended dosage on a lot of these today is a thousand milligrams, but that's not what was done in the study. 2000. And BioCell is the, the brand or the manufacturer? Yeah, BioCell is the actual trademark patented material. And so a lot of companies license it. But here's the thing. Don't, a lot of times they come up with a way to differentiate themselves by adding something to it and saying, well, ours is better because we've added this. And then you're just paying more money. No, just get, in fact, you can go to the BioCell website. Just order BioCell, straight BioCell. And there's a lot of companies that do have just straight BioCell. We'll have to do an episode on just all of your supplements and <laughs> your whole routine because I'm sure it's, it's really advanced. That's a great tip. Okay, next we have hyaluronic acid, definitely one of the more popular ingredients. You can find it in serums, in moisturizers, but something I do think is interesting to talk about is the molecular weight of hyaluronic acid. Mm -hmm and why that's important? So there's a lot of new, um, new nuances and, and new aspects of hyaluronic acid. So hyaluronic acid has been around a, a long time. In fact, it was around uh, 1972, I believe it was 72, that it was being used in ophthalmology. Um, and hyaluronic acid originally came from rooster combs on top of rooster's head. So it was used in ophthalmology because they would, um, and they still do it to this day, but they would put eye drops in the eye that would expand the, the field of, um, of the, what they're operating on and give the eye a lot more pliability and buoyancy. Um, but it was first used in cosmetics, to the best of my knowledge, around 1989. Now, it's a large molecule. Believe it or not, the hyaluronic acid that you see in a skincare product is exactly the same as what they inject in the skin, except when they inject it in the skin, it's more purified and there may be a difference in viscosity and a difference in cross-linking and things like that. Same stuff. And it's a really large molecule, so it just sits on the surface. So I've used hyaluronic acid for years. It's in tons of our products. Um, it's kind of acts like a, a bit of a sponge on the surface of the skin. And so it, it absorbs about anywhere from one to 10,000 times its weight in water, but it's short-lived. It's not this miracle ingredient. But the reason why it's important in your body is we produce hyaluronic acid. It gives us volume. It makes us fluffy. 50% of what we perceive as aging is loss of volume. 
So skin, when it starts to lose its volume, it's like letting the air out of a balloon. And I, I people say that to me all the time. Chan, I woke up and it looks like somebody let the air out of my face. So um, it, what we're talking about is something that is a much newer technology. And what I work with is I work with these tiny hyaluronic acid molecules that actually get in. Now, just because it gets in, that's not why it works. When you get a hyaluronic acid injection in the skin for a line or a wrinkle or, you know, you're, to create volume, what the hyaluronic acid they're injecting does is it doesn't give you the correction. It provides a platform or a scaffolding for collagen to form around it. That's what gives you the correction. So how long the correction lasts is going to be dependent on where it is in the face because the more movement you have, the faster it breaks it down. And if you have like when you they do something like Voluma, which is done in the cheek area to kind of lift and to give more volume, well, that has very little movement. That could last a year, a year and a half, two years. And also the cross-linking and all those things. So what we're doing is we're take, taking the small molecule and our small molecule is 50 to 100 times more water absorbent. So instead of, um, instead of being one to 10,000, it's, excuse me, it's 50 times more. It's 50 times more than that. And instead of sitting there for in the skin for, you know, on the surface of the skin for a couple hours, this is when it penetrates at even 24 hours, there's still five times as much. So it's a very, very different technology. And what happens when you're using it day and night and it's sitting there, it's providing a scaffolding or platform for collagen to form around it. That's what we call it, why we refer to it as 3D volumization. It's not going to replace injectables, but it just gives the skin just that more plump, volumized look kind of from the inside out. And um, it just it, it, it just makes everything look so much smoother, softer, it just... Um, giving it kind of that 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 plumpness that's that's not just a temporary plumpness, um, and so we also have molecules in there we have, that actually stimulate your own hyaluronic acid, stimulate your own elastin. We have peptides. This is there's a lot of technology in this product to support all of this. Now we have the serum, which is for any skin type, but People that have really oily skin love it because you don't feel like you don't feel like you're adding another product. But we also have the cream and we have the lips. And the cream is going to give you the same endpoint. It's not like, oh gee, one is so much better than the other. But the cream has things in it specifically for if you're in really cold weather, you have really dry skin, you have compromised barrier function. It has some revolutionary technology that can change your barrier function in less than two hours. And it, you, you know, when you have people that have that sort of that um, look of almost fine line dryness, that's mainly mm -hmm. from compromised barrier function, that will change within two hours. And it has just revolutionary technology in terms of being able to work with fibrin and work with various kinds of aspects of barrier function and having your skin function like a person that doesn't have a barrier function issue in cold weather, et cetera. Um, so that's, that's another thing that we've done is we've taken it to kind of a different level and 
I love using the cream in colder weather at night. I use a serum during the day. How about, you know, I hear a lot of conversation, especially amongst professionals and some some consumers and clients ask, is there a difference between a low molecular weight hyaluronic acid and a high and is either one superior? First of all, I work with, I work with all of them because what you want is you want an immediate effect on the outside. You want a more time release effect. And by the way, even the larger one is we use as a time release. And then you want to, to get that down into much deeper layers. But just because it says it's mo- low molecular weight doesn't mean that it's doing what I'm saying it's doing. Mm. And I got an unusual question the other day from somebody nervous to use hyaluronic acid. I know we make it in our bodies anyway, and it's in almost every moisturizer to some extent. But I got an email from somebody wanting to work together who said, could we avoid using any hyaluronic acid? I'm afraid it's going to make me break out. That's That's been my mm-hmm. experience in the past. Have you seen anything no. like that? So first of all, the first thing I would ask that person is I would say, so tell me, what product were you using? Yes. Because it's going to be typically another ingredient in there. And it could be any number of ingredients, but it could be an ingredient that is known to be comedogenic or something that's on the edge of being comedogenic, or it could be an essential oil because essential oils, you know, this is again where it gets very complex. Um, A lot of times people think essential oils are this, this absolutely miraculous kind of technology, but was it cold pressed or was it pressed with a chemical? Probably pressed with a chemical and those chemicals will cause acne. So I can go on and on in terms of why an ingredient might create a problem. But I have never, ever, ever had an issue with our products with acne. And as a matter of fact, you can go to, there's a gentleman, um, a physician down in Southern California, uh, Dr. Emmer. Dr. Emmer is one of the most prolific derms known you know, uh, in the U.S. And he does a lot of aesthetic work and a lot of body work. Um, he's famous for being able to, you know, when you do liposuction, make your abs look like they're sculpted and all that kind of thing. But he did, there's a whole thing on his website, I'm, I'm assuming it's still up there, where he did uh, microdermabrasion, or not, 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 I'm sorry, microneedling with our hyaluronic acid. And you can see his comments and how effusive he was. Um, but no, that's, I, I, I do not have any data or any evidence to suggest that. I said the same thing and that it was likely another ingredient. And I don't know a workaround for hyaluronic acid because generally we want it and, and we need it. Yeah. Well, yeah, there are other there are other ingredients that are hygroscopic that, you know, kind of are water loving. But, yeah. um, you know, they're not quite the same. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. We've, we've got... A couple more left here. We did want to touch on anti-inflammatories and CoQ10. Yeah. Well, you know, anti-inflammatories are really critical. You hear so much about antioxidants. And about 20 years ago, antioxidants were kind of debunked. It's not that they're not good. It's not that um, trying to address free radicals is not good. But they're not the panacea for aging in the skin at all or in the body. 
And as a matter of fact, one of the oral anti-aging treatments, which is metformin, which shows that it extends life, one of the reasons that metformin works, which is actually a diabetic medication, type 2 diabetes, is because it triggers tiny little amounts of free radicals in your cells, and it turns on your anti-aging genes, your serotonin, your serotonins. So you, you, anti-inflammatories really are where we want to be because aging is an inflammatory disorder. When we talk about heart disease, when we talk about diabetes, when we talk about arthritis, when we talk about our collagen breaking down, we talk about the way that our body uh, starts to deteriorate. It's really an inflammatory-based process. Now, it's much more complex than that, but that's kind of the basis of it. So we want to inhibit inflammation in the skin, and I, I, I like anti-inflammatories. Um, again, inflammation is going to contribute to collagen breakdown, elastin breakdown, wrinkle formation, et cetera. And so some examples of some anti-inflammatories that I work with would be ascorbyl palmitate. These are really potent anti-inflammatories, DMAE. Glycolic is one of the best anti-inflammatories we've ever seen. Salicylic acid azelaic acid, a lot of the peptides, uh, TGF-beta-1, thymosin beta-4, phytomelanin in our sunscreen, coenzyme Q10, interferon alpha-2b, retinol is a potent anti-inflammatory, benzoyl peroxide, the right benzoyl peroxide, incredibly potent anti-inflammatory. One of the newer medications for rosaceous prescription mm -hmm. medication, you know what it is? Benzoyl peroxide, got approved for rosacea. Uh, certain peptides, certain green tea extracts. And so, and I'm not talking about just a, any green tea extract, but it's, it's the very potent chemical in green tea. Niacinamide, licorice extract, turmeric, um, you know, different peptides. So uh, I just think the more anti-inflammatories that we work with, the better our skin responds. Beautiful. Love it. So important for, like you said, Aging is an inflammatory process, acne, rosacea, great ingredient to include. And then last on our list, Jan, is the, maybe the most important of all, sunscreen. And, ah. you know, some people might say sunscreens have chemicals in them. Of course, water is a chemical. So it's a really complex subject and we're going to kind of, we're going to oversimplify it a bit. But, um, you know, sunscreens, it's not just a cosmetic issue, it's a health issue. Uh, we have the, the numbers of skin cancer continue to grow. Malignant melanoma is for, fatal 50% of the time. The numbers of malignant melanoma are very high. Um, and so we really have to wear a sunscreen. And I think there's a lot of misinformation. Now, sunscreens, first of all, are over-the-counter drugs. So they're highly regulated. They are considered to be a drug. It's just that you don't have to have a prescription for them. But the FDA regulates them and scrutinizes them highly. So everything that you say about a sunscreen, you know, anytime you, you get something that is a specific sunscreen, it has a little box on the back and it says drug facts. Everything is regulated specifically as to what you're allowed to say. Even the size of the little line that goes around the box. Um, and one of the things that the FDA requires that you do is that anytime you manufacture a product where you're going to assign an SPF factor, you have to go to an outside agency and it has to be independently tested. And it has to be something that the FDA approves. And then they come back to you and they validate that you're a 30 or you're a 50 or you're an 80 or whatever. They do not know 
whether they're testing a chemical or whether they're testing a physical screen. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about physical sunscreens. So a physical sunscreen is going to reflect light off of the skin and a chemical sunscreen kind of, it absorbs and the chemical disables it, so to speak. And so there's a lot of, of, of discussion that somehow physical sunscreens are better. Well, they may be better than some chemical, than some formulations, but in general, uh, the FDA approves these sunscreen chemicals and the last sunscreen chemical that was approved was Mexthoral, and it took them 20 years to get Mexthoral through. But the chemical that typically is only one or two chemicals that will even protect you in the UVA range. Now, boy, I don't want to get too complex on this, but I'm going to have to kind of unpack it a little bit because when we look at how sunlight absorbs into the skin, it is measured by nanometers. What we see when we look outside, even when it's just barely, sun's just barely coming up, anything we see, visible light, it's about 50% of the spectrum. We don't even see the other 50%. So the 50% we see, UVA, UVB primarily, it's measured in terms of how it penetrates in what's called nanometers. And so nanometers is just another way of measuring. It's not that much different from inches or yards or feet, but it's, it's a measurement of penetration. And so it goes from zero to 400. That is the um, range of visible light. Now UVB starts at zero and it goes to 320. We call those short wavelengths and they're the most prominent during the summertime. That's when we're closer to the sun. And so they have more um, intensity. And that they tell us, stay out of the sun between 10 and 3, because that's when it's the most intense, right? That's when you're most likely to burn. So we call those burning rays. And they don't have the same intensity in the wintertime. They don't have the same intensity, even if it's really sunny and warm outside. So it's when you're closest to the sun in those the summer months. And those, again, are burning rays. Now, UVA starts at 320 and it goes to 400. UVA rays penetrate the skin like an x-ray. So you don't get a sunburn, per se. You don't even know that you've had anything that you've come in contact with, but it's destroying your collagen. It's breaking down your elastin. It's creating all the havoc for brown spots, lines and wrinkles, inflammation. And... It's the same intensity all year round. It could be January, you walk outside, the sky is black, it's snowing, you're getting the same amount of UVA as you are at 12 noon in July. And it penetrates through the windshield of your car, 50% at least, penetrates through light clothing, comes in through your windows. If you are just have your blinds open and you've got lots of nice sunlight coming in, it's like a weekend on the beach if you're doing for the whole week. So that is really responsible for a lot of our skin cancers, a lot of, of the really kind of deeper um, skin issues that can occur. So you, you have to wear your sunscreen. And here's the thing. It, it, in the U.S., we are so controlled by the FDA in terms of what we can say and what we can't say. The SPF factor only measures UVB. 
Other countries, they have two measurements or they measure it differently. So you're only seeing, and the only way you know that you're getting UVA is broad spectrum. But broad spectrum essentially means that it goes over 320. What if it only goes to 325? So you have to then look at what is the, what is the chemical? There's only one chemical right now, one or two, that can go to the end of the spectrum. One is avobenzene. Abobenzone, excuse me, used to have a brand name called Parcel 1789. Now, I happen to like that very much because there was a study that was done with an SPF 12 with zinc and an SPF 12 with abobenzone. Now, in terms of how they measured against, you know, protecting you to the end of the spectrum or whatever, that's one issue. But there's something called immune function protection. Immune function protection is how does your skin repair this damage? How does it fight it off? What about all these kind of deeper issues that are going on? So in terms of immune function protection, the SPF 12 with zinc was the equivalent of an SPF 4. The SPF 12 with Parsol became a 45. So it's, there's a lot more to it than just does it cause my skin to burn, doesn't it cause my skin to burn? You can, you know, your UVA rays can penetrate through light clothing. That's why when you get this sun protective clothing, it's also, it's heavy like denim. A lightweight t-shirt that's like a nice, a really thin, nice t-shirt for summertime, it's like an SPF two or four. That's all it does, protects you against. So you've got to have sun protection that really is meaningful. Otherwise, why wear it? And the other thing is, is that the reason people don't wear sun protection is not because they're stupid. It's because they don't like how it feels. They'll do anything to avoid it. So I've made these, we make three sunscreens. I've made them so that you're, you're, you'll like your skin better with them on than without them. And the oil capture system can't capture the actives or the water. Uh, it can only go after oil. So if your skin's dry, it leaves it soft and silky. If you're oily, it balances it. Um, there's a lot of other things that we have in there to mitigate the still, you still absorb two to 3% radiation with any sunscreen. Would you say just heading into the summer months, I know a lot of people feel like there's a benefit to getting some sun or getting a little bit of a tan. Do you feel like there's anything such as a healthy tan? Nope. Tan is your body's way of saying you have significantly damaged us and we're going to produce more melanin. And you're also setting up the um, irregularity of melanin production for the future. So when you're looking in the mirror and you're saying, oh, I have this nice bronze looked all over. And then two years later, you're looking in the mirror and you're saying, well, I'm kind of bronzed here and I've got a big splotch here and it's not even anymore. I mean, oh my God, it's the worst thing that you can do. Um, you know, one other thing I want to mention when we talk about ingredients, there's this, this, this huge discussion all the time going on about toxicity and what we're putting on our skin. And are we, you know, using things that are harmful and toxic and all of that. Um, there is nothing that is really regulated as far as what natural means or what organic means. Organic actually means derived from carbon. So for that matter, gasoline is organic because it's derived from carbon. Um, so none of this stuff is regulated. 
And what I can tell you is, is that quite a few years ago, when Great Britain joined the European Union, they came under the regulation for skincare. And the European Union had very, very strict regulations that most parts of the world don't have. And the regulations included that every single product that got exported to the UK had to go through toxicity testing by an independent toxicologist. So in other words, we had to go out and we had to find an acceptable toxicologist that had to take each product and their, re- their stringency and their requirements far greater than the U.S. I mean, you could have something that says the U.S. It says it's fine in, in, you know, one part per 10 million. The U.K. would be like, nope, uh-uh. And we'd be like, well, if you can find it in there, show us where it's at because at that point you can't even find it. Sometimes it's just, it's just like something that is just almost occurs naturally. Well, we went through, we were already exporting products and we went through the toxicity testing on every one of our products. Every one of our products has passed that toxicity testing. Many products that were being exported to the U.S. pulled back and stopped exporting because they could not pass or they needed to completely reformulate. So that's something that I'm also very proud of. You mean if products want to be sold in in Europe, they have to yeah, pass we're, that? We've, we've, been, we've never, ever had a break in being able to sell them in, in out, you know, outside the U.S., in, um, in the European Union. And those, even though Great Britain now pulled back from the European Union, they still have all of those laws in place. In fact, some of the things have gotten even more strict. Yes, that's, that's such a great, great point, Jan. So, um, yeah, thank you so much. I know we're 20 minutes over time here, so I want to respect your schedule. But uh, no. Just thank Great. you as always for coming on. This was so, so informative and I know everyone's going to absolutely love it. Well, thank you. It's just it's always, like I said, it's just such a pleasure to, to spend time with you. And I'm so happy that we were able to be together today <laughs> and everybody who is listening. Thank you so much. Cause I wouldn't be here without you. Thank you, Jan. We appreciate you and everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And we will talk to you again very soon in another episode. I hope so. I look forward to it. (laughs) She'll be back. Thank you, guys. Bye.